So hi, Steve. I just uh, look at your blog and I found out that you actually started pre-Java, so Java before Java. How it is possible, actually? Uh, yeah, I started Java when it was in alpha version, 1.0 alpha. So uh, I was doing development work in a weather company and they were looking at how to display weather maps online, which in the very early days in the sort of 1990s and we came across java and we sort of messed around with java applets to try and display interactively complex sort of weather maps for pilots and things like that so i played with java then and been using it ever since to be honest and did it actually work with your weather maps no it didn't really work <laughs> it didn't really work <laughs> at all but uh it was in the days of, of applets where it was just sort of dancing duke in We could put some image tiling in there. They didn't go that way in the end, uh, but it was it was a good experiment. And from that day onwards, we actually worked with Java and moved over from C++ to Java for mainly back-end server coding. So uh, we carried on with Java, but the applet never never materialized. So what I remember from these days it was the Duke uh, with the um, you know air hammer or how it's called the you know industrial uh, air pressure hammer. And it was on a very famous uh, applet. What I'm curious about, um, were you just able to download Java Pre without any uh, big deal from JavaSoft directly? So you could just download Alpha and it worked? Yeah, it's a long time ago. Uh, I think I can, you could just download it. It was always freely available to use. Uh, maybe it, it might have had a potential commercial license. I can't remember. Uh, but at the time where we were experimenting, it was free to use. Uh, there was no IDE support, obviously, so it was all done in in uh, sort of Emacs at the time. Uh, and the class path was a nightmare to get your head around because you had no support for it. So you had to set all the environment variables up correctly and everything. But it, it was it was it was good. I mean, I was, at the time I was a C++ programmer, so the benefit of Java at that time over C++ was just the huge amounts of standard libraries within. Java itself, like threading and networking, which was which was a horrible thing to do in C++ cross-plat. Exactly. So we had almost the same history. So I started with uh, C++, and someone mentioned like Java is the real thing, and I really like C++. And I said, okay, if it's the case, I just switched to Java, and uh, I downloaded from JavaSoft also a pre pre-version, and I started with applets, and I couldn't get to know the point why we need applets. Like, what's the deal with that? But uh, a few months later, I got asked, you know, questions whether uh, I could program something on the server with content management system. And I did, uh, got the idea to use Java because uh, I had no idea about CGI back then. So I stick with Java from then. Okay, nice. Um, so a couple of years later, so I try to remember how we actually met the first time. And what I found is... It's an email from 2014 where you invited me to have a virtual Java user group session. And I delivered a session about Glassfish v4 monitoring. And I think at the same year, per accident, I signed up to a session, Java One session, and you delivered a session. And I think it was about JMS and JCA or stuff like that. So um, t back then, it was C2B2, I think, the company. Yep. And then uh, you found Payara. So uh, what what interests me? What was your actually your way, you know, to Java E? Um, so how it happened, and and 
why you started with Java at all? Because you no, know, if you are from the early days, uh, you could do something else. So why you, you know, what is your your road to Java E? So Java E, I've done Java E since uh, the late '90s, really. Uh, so in the '90s, I worked for a company called Object Design, which was an object database company. Uh, they had a C plus plus based object database, which was a very clever technology. Uh, uh, but they also had a Java based one, and people at that time were moving from Perl and CGI over to uh, servlets. So my first experience really in Java EE was the servlet specification and looking at building web applications using servlets, because at the time, very much like serverless in this day and age, CGI scripts had a problem where they weren't resident. They just fired up when you when you accessed the servlet, well, sorry, the CGI script, where servlets were resident in memory in an application server. So we used to use JRun. We used to build a lot of uh, web applications. Well, our companies were building a lot of web applications at that time, and it was all the latest technology. So we were using Java servlets accessing uh, object databases this is before the days of JPA or even before EJB, really. So I can remember when EJB Container Managed Persistent came out that we, as an object database company, we we laughed at the, the specification. And if you go back in time at those days, there was a there was a competing specification called Java Data Objects, which was very much more like JPA is nowadays. And we had a we had some experimental support to Java data objects. So that was, that's, that's basically where I came in from uh, into Java EE because everyone in the 90s was building new web applications and they were playing with object databases as well for storing media and, and, and those things that you couldn't at the time store in relational databases. Mm -hmm. The object design, was it object store? It was object store, yeah. Okay. So I was an object <laughs> store consultant at the time. Oh, very interesting. And I evaluated Object Store for a for a company back then. So um, because uh, the object databases were the thing, and we had to store industrial data. So so there's another similarity. It's really funny. So objects uh, an Object Store, and there was a thing renamed to Echelon or something like this yeah, later then, I right? Was, I, I was at Exelon when they renamed. Yeah, it, it basically company changed its name to Exelon, and they had an XML database at the time, which was based on Object yeah, Store. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, there was uh, um, Java uh, JDO, there was CMP, and there was a commercial product. I forgot the name from Sun. It was very similar to object databases. Um, I forget actually the name. I have to look it up. It was also um, at the time, which has now become Eclipse Link. This was Smalltalk, right? Yeah. This was in Smalltalk, and uh, there was um, I have to look it up. So I, I, I dig into this. Uh, there was a uh, a commercial product was very similar to JDO, and it was actually funny that uh, Sun had two you know uh, competing standards like JDO and CMP, and both were completely different. Where JDO was like JPA, and CMP was like how to call it, it would be more like almost serverless technology where, you know, the persistent object was uh, had a remote view as well. So it was like an uh, uh, interesting, interesting approach, which actually never worked, right? Because the next spec, they removed the remote. Yeah. Okay. And so you stick with that and then you used EGB in one point of time or what was the road, you know, to Glassfish or... Yeah, I mean, we used, they say object design at the time tended to be heavily uh, used in web applications. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, 
we used EJB, we used servlets, we used remote EJBs. As at the time, there was a lot of work with RMI and building distributed systems or N-tier systems, as we called at the time, which is very similar to a microservices architecture now, whereby you had little services that that talked to each other, which hence it was N-tier because we had many different tiers of the architecture. And that was tended to be built in RMI. And then EJB was basically invented to solve the problems of RMI from my perspective. So we, we, we worked with EJB, we worked across, cause, because I was a technology consultant, I worked all over the Europe in many, many different projects doing many, many different things. So I, I saw lots of different architectures that we're using, either web, HTML or RMI or EJB. So yeah. Okay, and which server did you use? Uh, in the servlet days, we would be using uh, JRun as was back in the back in the Apache days, and then for EJB, we used very very early WebLogic four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, even earlier there was a Tenga. Yeah, I, was the name. I didn't get ever use Tenga, but I worked with WebLogic four. So okay, cool. And then, um, so what happened? Then the, the, we got Java 5 and Java 6 in one point of time. Somehow you stick to Glassfish, right? Well, so I, I briefly worked for Oracle for two years. So oh, I didn't know this. Uh -huh. I worked for Oracle 2000, 2002, which is okay. when they bought, uh, or they bought OC4j from a Swedish company, whose name, name I forget. Uh, and Orion, Orion, Orion that's server, it. right? Yep. So... I worked with OC4j and 2002 I left Oracle and basically became an independent consultant for doing a lot of work for BEA and founded C2B2 in 2002. Ah, but uh, the OC4j was actually interesting. So I used the Orion server back then and this was like built by a really sm small dedicated team from Sweden. And they had even, you know, uh, a deployment UI user interface, which was uh, really lightweight and it worked very well. It was very fast. So the startup was, was great. And then, you know, the longer we, <laughs> we um, the longer Oracle, you know, improved the product, the slower it became. But at the beginning, <laughs> at the beginning, it was a really fast uh, product. I was, uh, I really liked that. Um, uh, you, you used OC4j in some projects? Uh, no, I was just there as an Oracle consultant, so we had to learn it because it was just at the time they bought it. So, okay, and you like that? At the time, it was great when they first got it because you could just unzip it and run it. <laughs> yeah, this was perfect. This was a really great technology. So, yeah, uh, this is. Uh, I was really. It's like this is. This is really nice back then. It wasn't so great when it became 9IS and it involved all the process manager and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is uh, usually beginning of the end. You know, if uh, if if you get more and more features, and then and then it. You know, begins to die. Okay, and you founded so C2 C2 B is your company, and this is fairly old company then, right? So 2002, there's a 15 years. So you had a 15 years party right now. Yeah, we uh, we've been going a long time. I mean, we be mainly do consultancy, performance, scalability of Java EE application servers. Essentially, what the company was founded to do. We did a lot of subcontracting okay, cool. to BEA, subcontracting to Red Hat and JBoss, JBoss 4, and onwards. And nowadays we tend to go direct to clients. So. And how big is your company? About 15 in C2B2. Cool. So and then, um, okay, this was your your uh, OC4j and and Glassfish. So what was your first time with Glassfish? So C2B2 were basically independent. So they provided support across WebLogic, Glassfish, uh, JBoss. So we started doing probably consultancy in Glassfish. 
uh, I can't remember when now, probably, I don't know, 2010, maybe 12, something around that sort of time. Glassfish 3, really, we didn't have really a lot of Glassfish 2 experience. So once once they re-architected it into Glassfish 3, is when we started looking at it and seeing more and more of it in the market and getting requests to do consultancy work on it. So it's actually interesting that we never met each other because I did a lot of Glassfish work and I started actually with Glassfish V2 and I think even V1 and V2 or was the Sun 1 something server and I used Glassfish V2 uh, in commercial projects and then of course migrations to V3 which I remember then you know lots of memory leaks and stuff we had to do with V3 and then stick with Glassfish. And uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And then and then you started the Payara, which is like a spin-off, right, of the uh, C2B2? Yeah, so essentially what happened when Oracle uh, stopped commercial support, we got asked by one of our consulting companies if, who was rolling out Glassfish 4 whether we could fix some bugs in the core application server. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously we're a consulting company. We'll, we'll, we'll do anything for money. So we basically fixed those bugs for them. Uh, and then they asked us how we were going to make sure those bugs could go upstream into the Glassfish code. And at the time, we tried, we, we discussed with some people about getting it upstream, but it was, it was quite difficult. Uh, so basically, once you do updates to an, app, uh, a, an open source project and you want to release your own version of it, for trademark reasons, you have to rename it. So at that point, we created Pyara and uh, really just to support that initial customer. And then we launched Java 1 about a month later just to see what the interest would be. So we had a very, very small stand at Java 1. And we picked up a couple of customers at that point. So we thought, you know, this is a, this is a good project. So we created a spin out within our organization and, and hired a engineering team. And that's that's where Pyora came from. So basically, there was a desire Which, in the market to keep it alive. There was a lot of fondness for Glassfish. So we, we uh, supported that. Okay, which year was it? Um, 2010 or nine? When did Oracle? It'd be, no, it'd be later than that. So 14, maybe? Okay this, was, okay, this was later with 2.14. Oh, yeah, exactly, because uh, uh, Oracle acquired Sign in 2009 and 2014. This is exact, exactly what was my, my when you invited me to the Java User Group London, talking about Glassfish. This is uh, this was 2014 in January. Yeah, we had. And I think that the, we had the Glassfish mm-hmm. User Group before we had Payara. So we were doing the Glassfish User Group as part of C2B2, who, who, who still do the JBoss User Group in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that so we were quite heavily in Glassfish at that t- that point in time. And what was the response to Payara, the first Java one? So were the clients you get lots of you know interest, or was just I don't know. So what was what happened actually at the booth at Java one in two thousand fourteen? Uh, we a lot of people were really fond of it, and we had a lot of people come up to us and say, "Oh, it's fantastic what you guys are doing," but we don't use Glassfish, which <laughs> we use Tomcat. Uh, but a lot of the ex-engineers as well came up to us and said, this is a fantastic you know, fantastic thing you're doing. But crucially for us, from a business perspective, two large US users came up to us and, and spoke to us about how they really you know, had just migrated to, to Glassfish 4 or they were on Glassfish 3. Uh, they didn't, both of them actually, interestingly, currently didn't have any support. 
but they really wanted some support. So they spoke to us and uh, they bought a very, very small initial contract to see see how we got on. And then that then it grew from there, really. And um, do, do you have uh, any, any idea how many commits you already contributed upstream or you how many bugs are fixed around so um to, to, because if someone asks me now what is payara i always my my answer is like patched glassfish with commercial support which is optional this is my answer i hope this is you know politically correct but um how many patches or bugs you already fixed do you have a rough number uh it'll be hundreds and hundreds now how many of those we created ourselves nowadays and how many are upstream would be uh, a number I wouldn't know. In the early days, we created lots of bug fixes. Uh, What is the most crucial one? So I would say, okay, this is like, you know, no go for Glassfish, but uh, really important for Payara clients. You know, something like this? One of the very, very early ones when we first got it uh, was a major memory leak in the CDI layer, which which mm-hmm. uh, basically, I don't, basically made it very difficult to use in production. So I think what is it around Christmas, <laughs> the Glassfish distribution? Because uh, I think we found the bug as well in a project in a in a stress test. Was it? Uh, you, do you have uh, in memory? Was it around winter with the bug? It would have been, but it'd been a couple of years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. This was a V3. Yeah, they basically uh, came mm-hmm. from C2B2. A consultant was in the field, you know, helping a customer that had Glassfish, and they identified a major memory leak was the cause mm-hmm. through a heap dump and we, we fixed that for that customer and now how payara is doing do you have i uh, know uh is it growing I, i just see that you are hired some 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 support engineers so uh you get uh lots of interest you know uh client requests so what's the business around payara is do, doing well is interesting or Payara is growing really quickly uh it's an open source project so there's always a challenge making you know asking people to buy support contracts and Payara is purely now funded from support. It's not funded by the consulting company and it's actually getting to the point where it's a similar size to the consulting company. Uh, so we've got many new customers uh, and we're hiring uh, people all over the world at the moment. So we've got customers in Japan, in the US and Europe. So we've got them right right around all time zones at the moment. So. Two priorities we've got. One is to build up the engineering team to meet the challenges of you know, microprofile and E for J and standards work around that. At the same time, we've got a challenge to build up our support team so we can support people in three time zones around the world. So, but we're growing. Mm-hmm. We're, growing. we're still very small. I mean, we're probably about 15 to 20 people now. I, I tend to lose count. And... Uh, so we're still small, but we're still funded purely by people who provide support services for us. So that funds all the open source work, all the E for J work and microprofile work. I actually do not believe in big companies because usually one point of time is lots of overhead and you know, management and politics. So uh, being small is always a good thing, I guess. And um, uh, yeah, this was uh, this is uh, actually interesting that it's doing well. So one question I have is, Uh, people are somehow associating, I don't know actually why, Java is you know, heavyweight or not productive or uh, put you know, any negative comment here. Uh, in my project, it's completely different. So people 
care less about Java E. They, they would like to have solutions. And if I present them, you know, some proof of concept with Java E, they're actually delighted. And they, they ask me, you know, what is it? I was like, okay, this is the application server called Java E. And they say, okay, let's go because it's extremely productive. So uh, do you have any idea why your customers are using Java E? And, and what is the response, you know, to, uh, to productivity, Payara, and the, let's say, development side of things? So I would say most of them use Java EE because they've always used Java EE. And mm -hmm. one of the major goals of us in Payara, because I've, I've always used Java EE as well, is to take Java EE developers along to all the new architectures. So Java EE can be cloud native, Java EE can work on IoT, you know, Java EE can be anywhere, any other server side development can be. So the main reason would be they have a lot of experience. There's many, many Java EE developers out there. They may not you know, get the most uh, visibility in, in the market because they don't shout too, too loud because they're just building real systems. Uh, so that, that's why most customers, I would say, would be on it. But our goal as Payara, like, like I say, is to build, make sure that those myths about servers and application servers just aren't true. I mean, Java EE at the end of the day is, is an API that builds on a lot of runtime services those runtime services as we've proven with pyr micro don't need to be heavyweight as such yeah actually Payara never was no. so uh the, the, the interesting part is um i'm back from the wjx conference it was last week i also met of course uh Payara team here there and um i delivered similar session what i did at uh, java one so the um, heavyweight versus lightweight and i measure the whole session you know the heap overhead and the attendees were, you know, they, they couldn't believe it. It's like, this is actually, it is uh, unheard of that the application servers are so small. And the funny thing is, everyone bashes, you know, um, Java E, but no one measures. And this is so simple to fire up, you know, the JVisual VM or uh, whatever tool you have and just to see how much memory actually the application server consumes. And Payara was really small and lean with the default configuration. I just, you know, I used the 473 and just launched it with even with the standard minus XMX512. Yep. And it just consumed about around, I think, 60 megs or something like this. Deployed an app, performed some performance tests, and we hit 10K transactions per second with uh, fully activated monitoring even. And I say, okay, what's the deal? You know, uh, uh, what what means lightweight, and uh, and this is actually undefined. The whole discussion about heavyweight and lightweight, it is. I couldn't even you know uh, uh, tell you what it actually means. So where are I going? So I would say lightweight is like assembler applications, like your kilobytes is really. And if we already start Java, then we are almost in the heavyweight. You know. Uh, uh, yeah, we used to, uh, region. We used to do an interesting yeah. thing as consultants. So we so we did a lot of performance stuff uh, as a consultant company. So, and we used to work heavily on WebLogic. So one thing we used to do for customers who'd complain that WebLogic was bloated and you know making their applications really slow is we basically write a servlet, deploy it, hit it really hard, and it would it would it would respond in like a couple of milliseconds, mm -hmm. and then point to the customer that perhaps. The reason that their application is responding in five seconds is slightly down to the application rather than how it's built <laughs> rather than the internals of the application server. And that, that, that little app we used to deploy would be a server like doing JPA, inserting some into a database, coming back, just to prove that all layers actually were very fast and lightweight. 
This is what I actually do right now is with uh, JAXORS, CDI, EJBs, and I do you know the heavyweight stuff with CDI, a couple layers of injection to uh, to and and even track you know hit up the profiler and see what is actually the output and um, and and this is the same. This is in a couple of milliseconds you get the answer. And I would even say that the most of the problems are I/O to database, not not. The, the most of the application services are not even the problem. The problem is usually the database. I don't know whether it's also your experience, but uh, where I always involved that there there are problems. Yeah, I mean, as a as like a middle tier engineer for all for all these years, you can scale the middle tier so it kills the database quite easily with application yeah, service. Exactly. And then you need to work out with the database team to work out how you can uh, work with them to make you know the middle tier not kill kill the database. Which is which is a lot of what application servers do. They protect the database. They don't, you know, they don't. They're not just there to, for the, for their own reasons. Most of them access databases and they have to protect the exactly. Database. And 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 I remember them now something. Uh, the application servers, the early days, the killer use case was the uh, database connection pooling actually, because you needed less licenses to the database. So lots of my clients wanted to have you know application servers because the resource user was pooled. Remember these days? Yeah, I mean that's that's an application server is an old TP monitor really. You you taking thousands of yeah. users and pushing them through ten to twenty connections. That's 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 what most people do use applications servers for, and and Java EA is, and that 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 use case hasn't gone away, uh, and you can do it in many different ways, but Java EE gives you a standard way of doing it. Yeah, cool. Uh, so what's interests me always interested me actually. Why you started with Payara Micro? Was it like a marketing gig or what's the deal with that? Because the Payara was always small. So why Payara Micro? Okay, Payara Micro was started, not necessarily to be small, because let's say it's actually, this, this was the secret of it, is it's not that much smaller than the server itself. Uh, exactly. <laughs> the reason really was to to move away from well, there's two reasons. One is, so it's it's an area we can experiment and innovate without breaking the server itself. So we could do things in Payora Micro, which we probably can't do in the server, uh, like the sort of auto-clustering and, and things like that. So that was one reason. The second was to move away from the domain model. I th when you move into sort of cloud-native architectures and things like that, then the domain model starts breaking down. So the domain model in an application server is where you have a fixed number of standalone servers controlled from an administration server. So when you move into cloud or Docker containers and things, that sort of goes away. If you need elastic scaling, then you need to not have a fixed set of servers. Mm -hmm. So Pyara Micro is really uh, created to, to start messing around with those sort of architectures and address those architectures. So it probably should have been called Pyara Cloud Edition or something, but Micro was all the rage and microservices uh, terminology was out there from a marketing perspective, so it became Pyara Micro. But really, it is the area we're looking at elastic scaling uh, and those sort of areas and architectures. The second, sorry, the third reason was to actually make it very easy for new sort of beginners to use Java EE and therefore the ability just to run a jar file, take a WAR file and just run it from the command line. That again yes. was, was there to make it very easy for people to use it for demos or to, to, for, for new people to learn how to use an application server. So you don't have to 
work out what the password is to get in the administration console and work out how you deploy an application via the admin console. This is actually true, right? So the, you, you can download the jar and say Java minus jar, Pyra micro minus minus deploy in war, and, it's, and it runs. So this is uh, beautiful, actually. The only, the only marketing feature in Pyra micro really is the creation of the Uber jar. Personally, oh, <laughs> okay, I didn't want to mention this. Um, Personally, I see no um, points, but that, that's my personal opinion. So, so I, 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 I thought a lot, you know, what would be the killer use case of the micro, uh, Pyra micro, and I actually, and, and Uber jar, and I found hopefully something. So um, in some uh, projects, we need extensions of Java. I mean, extensions like domain extensions. So the, the perfect case is, for instance, POE library, the Apache POE, where you can write and read, you know, uh, uh, Office documents from, from, from Microsoft, for instance. Yep. And in this particular case, what we usually did is we try, you know, to move this out of the war because uh, uh, in my world, a thin wars is best practice. So if the war is thin, deployment is faster. So, and we use it, uh, either we put it to layers, uh, Docker layers or uh, uh, Glassfish libxt or in, in, in a um, lib folder. And with Pyara Micro, you could actually create your own distribution of Pyara Micro with the libraries re required already inside uh, the micro. So you could have your own company, you know, micro, uh, micro distribution. And this, I think, is a valid use case because I've got lots of questions. What we can do, you know, with valid dependencies, not like, you know, uh, nice to have common something, but a real stuff which we do, do, wouldn't like to reinvent. So I see actually... This is as a killer use case. You also see this? Or? Yeah, that's a, that's a fairly new feature in that we have the ad libs now where you can add jars into the micro uh, jar file, Uber jar. And that, that is, that, we've, we do see that now, people packaging up libraries and, and placing them within the jar file, then you have one unit. That, 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 that's an evolution mm -hmm. of where we were originally. Yeah, perfect. But... Um, I agree fully with you that uh, like cloud edition, but um, having said that, I always use uh, Payara with a single domain for the cloud deployment, so I didn't need the domain server. We just used one server without glass uh, without clustering, and this worked well. But you are you are right if you don't need it, so you can just remove it, and what remains is like a micro, right? Because you can simplify things. Yeah, the only, the only other difference is Micro doesn't have OSGI, so uh, it doesn't have the complexity of OSGI internally. But that's yeah. not really an advantage. It's just, but yeah, it was definitely for that cloud architectures, that 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 sort of view of of how to run you know, multiple independent servers and to get them to cluster together. So you can do this in in putting a DAS only; they can still cluster uh, through Hazelcast. So nice. So I think two years ago. Uh, we all, or you, started um, the micro profile, Eclipse micro profile project, but it was not first uh, Eclipse, it was just a micro profile website, and then they moved to, to Eclipse. So it started with a, with a call, and then the project started, which was actually a great because then you get room, you know, to innovate. So, uh, what was the history of the micro profile? So you, uh, this is uh, Payara micro is something like the implementation of the Eclipse micro profile or what's the relation between micro and M Eclipse micro profile right now? Uh, okay, so the relation, there isn't one really in that. So micro profile itself, we were invited by Red Hat because Red Hat and IBM kicked off the initiative. Uh, so, so we got involved from, from the first day when it was announced. 
So MicroProfile itself is building sort of new APIs in a collaborative fashion to, so uh, for microservices architectures. And Pyara, so, so Pyara, are, the company, are implementing those APIs. But those APIs will be available both in Pyara Server and Pyara Micro. So we're not restricting them just to the micro edition. Mm -hmm. We're making them available because most of these, the, the capabilities offered by MicroProfile APIs are just as suited for any distributed application, whether it's microservices or not. So we're, we're basically going to put APIs in both server and micro, so there'll be no difference in what APIs are available. It's really just the deployment model that changes between server and micro. Okay. So what is actually the added value of Eclipse MicroProfile right now comparing it to, let's say, stock Java 8? So MicroProfile is adding uh, new APIs, one, is, one for configuration, so you can inject via CDI config properties, so like environment variables, uh, properties files, directly into your applications, which is very common need on a cloud architecture because you, you have a, a flat run, a standard runtime, say like a Docker image, uh, but that then you take that runtime and run it in many different environments. So you can then basically inject what changes between those environments into your application. Uh, and we're building that into the server itself longer term so that you could be able to inject those properties into things like data sources, um, message-driven beam configuration, those sort of areas. MicroProfile is also building uh, APIs around standard sort of distributed computing things like bulkhead and circuit breakers, uh, those sort of APIs too for calling out to external services in a more robust fashion and delivering health check and metrics APIs so we can integrate them more into cloud monitoring. Personally, yeah, this is personally, mm -hmm. personally, I think microservices probably is, is, is a bit of a bad name because a lot of this is really cloud native. I think cloud native is more important than the microservices piece. So, yeah, for, for me, microservice doesn't doesn't mean anything. It's like you know, uh, I always do the joke that actually all my talks were about microservices. But five years ago, I had no idea that there is a no name microservice. And because we always have to think, you know, about uh, timeouts and uh, we always had, you know, bulkheads and thread pools and uh, EGB pools even. So there was no difference to, to now uh, because uh, the only difference is now people care about these things right now and they will completely ignore back then. And five years ago or even uh, even more created a monitoring solution for Glassfish and this was very... Uh, very useful in my projects, but no one cares about this. It's like, okay, who cares about that? And now it would be it would take off because everyone is interested in monitoring in dashboards and stuff like that. Yeah, I think cloud native is the most important, which is actually being able to run within these cloud environments that are elastic, that are you know that they can migrate things on the fly. Uh, that's building the application so it's so you it can live within that that architecture, like on an on an Amazon or Azure or Google is is a challenge and that's where that's what we're addressing through uh micro profile but we're also addressing it through the server modification to the server itself core server and core micro code so the payara full is also micro profile capable right could i yep. do i have also okay this is actually good to know because i could use the payara full with uh, configuration injection for instance yes we don't do micro profile 1.2 yet because we're aligning that with a release that's based on Glasses 5, but uh, mm -hmm. it will be there soon. 
but it will be on server okay. or micro. It would be no, make no difference. Okay, cool. Um, you said something interesting about Uber jars or Fed jars. I have to admit, I never got the concept. And uh, I always ask you new know, developers why you are doing this. Because from from the development perspective, it's like if you're building a business app, I would say only 2% of the whole runtime changes. This is your code. And with the Uber jar or Fed jar, Fed jar you will have, you know, to rebuild the jar each time. So you will build 98% of all the stuff which never changes. Also, in fact, your release cycle is, I think, three months, right? So every three months you would get a new release, right? So you so then it only changed once uh, every three months, but I will have to rebuild it over and over again. And I actually never got an answer. So I, I, I asked uh, many developers, I even asked vendors at DevOps, and I got one answer. One company told me, you're right, but we started before Docker, and Docker solved the problem. Yeah, so this was for me. A- I think that's the right answer. I think <laughs> Docker solves that problem. And it's better not to have an Uber jar and a Docker because of the reason that you say, you know, you don't want to rebuild it, the layer over and over and over again. Uh, the bigger the layer, the, the bigger pain that is. So the best Docker architecture would be, you know, Pyora Server or Pyora Micro with a, as the base, as a base layer, which you know is a, is a solid version, and then adding your deployment unit on top. Yeah, this is actually uh, really funny because this is uh, per accident, you know, Java became the platform uh, <laughs> for cloud native, I mean, actually, right? One thing we're seeing in the consulting side, the problem with Uber jars, uh, which are on, on a solid foundation, is that people don't know what the, what's in it. So operations teams, you know, when something like... Uh, some vulnerability comes in some Apache Commons library. They actually have no idea whether any of their applications that are running as fat jars have that app, that library within it, or it's very difficult mm-hmm. to to know that. Whereas if you have a version runtime, say a Pyro Micro 17.3, then you can actually find out whether 17.3 is dependent on that or not. And obviously, the same issue occurs when if you package the world in your WAR file, but if you do thin WARs, then you know what's in there. Yeah, yeah. thin WARs is the way to go, I would say. Um, also, also a funny story. So um, I was uh, hired uh, for Java e consulting, but it wasn't Java e, and they used uh, Fed jars. And uh, the first day, I just fire up Payara with NetBeans, and they say, "Why are you your de- de- deployment is so quick?" And I use Docker and a little bit of cloud. And I say, "Why quick? As normal, this is nothing special." It's like, "What's in your case? Have you, you know, is it a virus scanner? Why it's so slow?" And it turned out that they had to rebuild the full. They did the Uber jar thing without recognizing this is nothing to do with Java. It was also not Payara. It was not Java. And um, this was funny. So my deployment took, I think, two three seconds, and they about thirty seconds. And then afterwards, to say, "Okay, they thought that Java is you no." Know, uh, uh, heavyweight, and therefore they decided to go the Uber jar approach. So interesting. Okay, now um, we have E4J. So you are also a little bit involved uh, in the E4J. Um, any thoughts on that? So is this good? Is it bad? So uh, yeah. Yeah. So I I only heard about E4J at Java One. I'm so Payara are on the project management committee of Eclipse, which is like the top. Well, basically, we, we, our job is to is to help people con- contribute. So at the moment, nothing's really happening uh, other than it's been all the announcements. So from my perspective, uh, this is a good thing. Uh, Java EE within so the JCP was was slowing down, mm-hmm. and 
really what we need to do is compete at open source speeds. So we, while maintaining you know a solid solid uh, runtime that people can trust. So moving to Eclipse will allow a lot more contributions and follow, what I'd like to see is an open source sort of development process where basically contributions are king and anybody can contribute through uh, Eclipse. And I'd quite like to see Java e move to a more sort of time boxed release uh, release periods. So I, whatever that period should be, it should be determined by the community, whether it's they want it faster, whether they want it slow. But essentially, we should have a release train where, say, every year there's a release. And I just made that time period up on the top of my head. And all the, all the other individual specifications can move at their own pace. And then basically, once a year, you sweep up all the versions and the point versions and release that as a as a Java EE or EE for J release. Any concerns with E4J or concerns really is the is the volume of work that's involved. Uh, mm -hmm. Ourselves and Tommy Tribe are in the PMC, but we are very small open source companies in comparison to the large organizations. And therefore, from our perspective, funds are tight. Uh, we are splitting our engineering into a sort of core service stream and a, and a standard stream, which will cover MicroProfile and EE4J. But actually, the volume of work required is large. And that, I think that can be reduced if we go to an open source model. But the danger is there that the volume of work is just enough to swamp people. I have another concern. So I look a little bit at the uh, mailing list and participated a bit, and uh, I see over and over again like the modularization and runtime. So my concern is a bit. So so far, Java Seven was great because of productivity. So what I mean by that, so everyone could start quickly because you only needed you know, one canonical dependency. This was the Java Seven API, and you were ready to go. So uh, all the application servers I know are small enough that they be, could they, they can be used right away. To, to, to develop, you know, uh, whether um, simplistic or, or, or complex business applications or applications. There are no more business applications, just applications. And uh, what I what I'm a little bit afraid of that we will get, you know, huge amount of variations of Java E uh, just for fun. So like multiple modules, you know, floating around. So I think the most important thing is to have still, you know, the canonical E4J full profile, whatever we will call it, which will include everything. And then if someone would like to, uh, like, you know, the bomb, the bill of materials is everything there. And uh, if someone would like to optimize, they can, they, they, they can create their own services, platforms or, or whatever. But this is a little bit my concern that if this becomes too complex, everything will die because then Java e is pointless. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I'm the modularity argument doesn't really it doesn't really switch me on, really, to be honest. Uh, Payara is modular. Uh, we could do a wildfire warm style modularity, but we've not bothered doing the work because Payara Micro is small anyway, and the actual gains. So we did we did for a while create a microprofile specific that only included microprofile APIs, but the boot time difference was uh, half a second, and the memory footprint was like 10% difference. And yep, the actual exactly. pain to modularize the whole of the application server so you can pick and choose pieces from an engineering perspective where we have limited resource was just not worth the effort. So we haven't gone the full wildfire swarm model, though we could. Uh, 
so I don't really see the benefit of modularization myself. Uh, the Sorry. the application servers don't start services they don't require, and they're all very also very small. So I would fight against you know, splitting uh, Java EE into many many different little profiles. I mean, the micro profile itself isn't really a profile; it's some new APIs. It's uh, exactly. badly named. Putting profile on the end of it. It's not like web profile or Java EE full. So I don't even see the point personally of the full profile of the web profile, but then I'm sort of by, a bit biased on that as well. So this is exactly my opinion. But I think this is easier to implement servers, you know, not to have to implement all the old stuff. I think this is a yeah, advantage yeah. to the vendors. No, I, and mm -hmm. I would like to see a legacy-free profile or legacy-free, where you're allowed to just remove you know, CMP yeah. and IIOP Soap. and things like that. Well, and soap. Soap's an interesting one because that's sort of half in the JDK and half not. So it's, diff it's difficult to know where that sits yeah. from a, a yeah. vendor's perspective. And soap's heavily used still. But uh, yeah, I, I'd quite like to see, you know, get rid of EGB 2.1, things like that. So, so great. Um, by the way, I remember the uh, persistence technology. It was called Java Blend. You remember that? I remember the name. I don't think I ever used it. And uh, I, uh, it was in the parallel to JDO and CMP, which was really strange. And if you look at it right now, so you will find all documents. They look like JPA, and it was 99 or something like this. It's crazy. Yeah, JDO is very like JPA as well. Yeah. yeah. So perfect. Uh, so um, any things to cover? So, um, or do you have any questions? No, I've enjoyed it. Perfect. Uh, it was a nice conversation, actually. We have no time if we meet, meet each other, you know, we meet at the booth or uh, somewhere and there is no time to speak. So I think the podcast is a great venue, you know, to just chat about technical things. Um, where people can find you or Payara or if they are interested in Payara or C2B2, you know, how to find you on the internet? Uh, Payara is at payara.fish uh, and C2B2 is at c2b2.co.uk. You can find everything about us there, about us support services and consulting services. So I'd encourage people to realize Payara is an open source company. That means we're only funded by support. Uh, so if you work for large organizations, please get them to purchase support. That's my plea. Exactly. Uh, so we are, we follow, Payara follows a pure open source. So we, we don't have any freemium or any enterprise features that we hold back and all developments done on GitHub. So we are a complete open, open source company. Okay, perfect. So, um, thank you. It was fun to me. So we can, you know, repeat it if uh, Payara Six is out or something like this. So, um, thank you, no and see, see, you, see you next time, right? Yep. Thanks. Bye. Bye.